Lord, we are your servants here today, and we need you to do a work in us through the ministry of the word. And Lord, we ask that what we know not that you would teach us, what we are not that you would make us, and what we have not, Lord, that you would give us. And allow me as your messenger to be faithful, to allow your text to speak, that the Holy Spirit would work through the breathed out word into the hearts of those who are here, most of whom I would expect are believers, some may be unbelievers. Lord, would you give us uh, wisdom and discernment and perspective and understanding? Would you convict us? And Lord, would you show us your glory? We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, this week has been a week of um, sadness in many ways. Um, Our country has paused one day at least to remember uh, a former president uh, who served our country. And of course, uh, the government shut down, uh, banks, post offices shut down, financial uh, markets shut down, or at least suspended trading. Why? Because that president was worthy of honor and respect for him as an individual, but also for his role as the leader of the United States at one point in time. The major networks covered the funeral service live and without much interruption, and so they should have. It's what you do. It's right. It's good. But on the evening of our Lord's burial, there really wasn't much going on, was there? He dies on a cross, but then he hangs there, dead. And there's a need for his body to be buried before the Sabbath begins, but there's no national mourning. There's no shutting down of governments or the closing of businesses or royalty or dignitaries coming from other countries to attend his burial. Jesus, the Son of God, dies. And the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. An earthquake takes place and dead believers start to rise up from the graves. But when it's time to take the body of Jesus from the cross, the surprises of the day continue to reveal themselves. Now, friends, this text is full of surprises. They may not hit us like they should because we are so familiar with the story. But imagine you're reading this gospel account for the first time. Imagine all the buildup, even through the Passion Week, of the story that you've been reading, and what you read at the end is really mind-boggling because of the things that you're seeing take place. In particular, those in Rome who would read this gospel, just think with me just about some of the surprises that we have read in this passage that will be a part of of, of the essence of what we're going to be looking at. The first surprise is that one of the religious leaders, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, is approaching Pilate for permission to bury Jesus' body. That, friends, is unexpected. That is a surprise. That is a shock to anyone who's reading this for the first time. The next surprise comes out of the lips of Pilate, who's surprised that Jesus is already dead. Then we're surprised that it's the centurion, the one who had watched the day's events and declared as Jesus breathed his last breath that truly this is the Son of God. And he's called to confirm the death of Jesus before Pilate. There's a surprise again. 
Then we're surprised at the persistence of the ladies, Mary Magdalene, Mary, uh, the mother of James, and Salome. And finally, we're surprised by the presence of an angel, a young man sitting in Jesus' tomb, robed in white. And so, friends, this, this text is just like, what? Wow? Huh? This is happening? Now, see, we know the story well enough. But allow it to kind of hit you afresh. But the real surprise, friends, is not those characters and what's happening with them. The real surprise is what is happening to Jesus. And what's interesting about this section of this gospel, although Jesus is certainly central, he is passive. Throughout the Gospels, we have seen Jesus preaching, healing, interacting, talking, right, counseling, all sorts of different things. And now, his body lies lifeless. He's not speaking. We don't actually have any account in this text of his movements except for what the angel says happened to him. That he is risen. And so this is a little different in this particular account, isn't it? But there's something important that we need to see. Mark has been preparing his readers for what would happen to Jesus. And he mentions it three times. And I know that, that you have heard this over and over and over again. So let's look at the last one. Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. This is the last account that Jesus gives, the last prophecy. And again, let this be an encouragement to you, but also let it set the stage for what we're going to be seeing today. Verse 33 of Mark 10. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Did all that happen? And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Now, friends, those are some specific statements. And those are the things that took place. And after three days, he will Rise. So in one sense, we who are reading this are not surprised because Jesus has already said this is what's going to happen. But even those disciples that he had told again and again about what he was coming to Jerusalem to do are not actually prepared for what he says he is coming to do. Even though these events are unfolding before them, they still can't comprehend the magnitude, especially of the last part of his own prophecy. And that goes for the women too. The women who were with Jesus and his disciples while they were traveling and ministering around Galilee and Judea had surely heard the words of Jesus' prophecy. But to really understand it, to believe it, and to comprehend it, that's another thing. And we can read the story of the gospel. Many people read the gospels and say, oh, it's, just, it's really a nice story. And they're blind to what the gospel is really about. And, and we can be guilty of the same thing. We say, hey, we've come to the end of Mark. Hasn't it been a great book? And really not taken in who Jesus really is. Or taken in why he actually has come. Or actually taken time to say, so what am I going to do with this? So consider with me then, Mark's readers in Rome. They would have heard the gospel, 
maybe in, in bits and pieces, and Mark's gospel account now gives them a, a, a fuller account, yet a, a brief account, full of surprises. Let's put that a little bit in perspective. Let me give you a few surprises that are true about you know, what happens here with Jesus. We need to go back a little bit just in time. Remember that, that Israel had been taken off into captivity, and yet there's a man that God raises up in the middle of Babylon to rest- that he's going to use to restore Jerusalem and ultimately to restore the temple, and his, main- his name is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah goes back, and he restores the, the city. He restores the people to their land. And even the end of the Old Testament ends on a downer because he comes back after having set things up. And people have allowed false teachers, Gentiles, in, even into the, the complex of the temple. And Israel is still heading now back down this path of, of wandering away from God. And then we have 400 years of silence. Not a sound from God at all. And then surprise, surprise. If you're a shepherd on a hill near Bethlehem, because there are these angels that come and they start announcing and singing, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior. Now, this is a surprise. This breaks in. And Jesus then grows up and is about 30 years old or so, and he enters into formal ministry by virtue of the baptism that John the Baptist gives him, at which time we are surprised now again by a voice from heaven that says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Hearing from God audibly at his baptism. And then there's another surprise, a surprise that is evident by the fact that Jesus goes into ministry and he would perform miracles and healings and casting out of demons and that he would have this this kind of teaching that would penetrate the heart and this confrontation that would leave those who were opposed to him speechless, astonished, angry. And so we are surprised that Jesus knows exactly what he has come to do. We're surprised that he is willing to face the hardship and the suffering and the abuse, and we're surprised to contemplate how he becomes that perfect sacrifice and pays the price for our sins and gives his life a ransom for many. Now, as his dead body hangs lifeless on the cross, new surprises are there for us to discover. A surprising burial, a surprising Resurrection. Now, although we come face to face with these many surprises, they are not the focus of what Mark is going to say here at the end. They are the means to revealing two significant truths that are the bedrock of our Christian faith. Now, I say here at the end of Mark's gospel because Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. I need to say this just kind of up front. In your Bibles, you might notice you may actually have verses 9 through the end of of that section. You may not have it. Most Bibles include it, but they kind of include it as a parenthesis. But as scholars have looked back at ancient texts, uh, they recognize that this this is really an addition to Mark's gospel. There's There's a tendency, they would think that historically Mark's gospel was given But when Matthew's gospel came out and Luke's gospel came out, there were things that were said there that they also wanted to include at the end of Mark's gospel. So there was an addition that's there. Nothing in the end is is a contradiction to what happens in the other gospels. It's all sound and theological, but historically we just don't believe it was part of the gospel. But you think of it this way. It's nothing, you know, there's no problem uh, where someone's like, I want to, I, I want to teach you, or I want to, I want to read to you Mark's gospel, but I also want to let you know what happens after the events that 
are here. And they ended up being recorded in many documents as an addition. So we're not going to actually preach through that because Mark's gospel actually ends at verse 8. And we'll see why that is important at the end of our time here today. And what's interesting, if you guys know who John MacArthur is, um, he's preached through verse by verse every book in the New Testament. And uh, funnily enough, um, his last book was the book of Mark. And so he gets to the end of Mark, and there's this section. It's like, well, I'm not going to preach it because it's not actually the word of God. <laughs> All right. So it was really interesting how that happened, just kind of a humorous note. So this morning, I would like for us to think through, just with all this kind of foundational preparation as we, as we come to this text, here's what I would like for us to consider. Don't be surprised by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but believe in the witness or the witnesses that verify that Jesus is risen from the tomb. So although there's lots of surprises here, don't allow the surprises to somehow hinder you from seeing the truth about Jesus and the evidence that's being laid out to verify that he actually did rise from the dead. And so with that, let's begin with uh, this first of two parts. First of all, the surprise that Jesus is truly dead. So the agony of Gethsemane is over, and the suffering of Golgotha is past. Now comes the burial in the tomb, describes in these verses. Now certainly the Easter story is not complete until uh, the, the tomb is empty, but the, the great atoning sacrifice has already been made. And the dividing curtain has been turned apart. And that's, that's why this, this cry while Jesus on the cross was totalicide. It is finished. The, the, the theological transaction necessary on that cross was made by Jesus. And now there's a, a lull in the storm, so to speak. It's as though after all the tenseness in this packed sequence from Gethsemane to Calvary, there's a need for a pause. Then we read verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Now Mark is careful to take time to explain some things to a Gentile audience. He's giving time markers. He's explaining the importance maybe culturally of maybe something they wouldn't understand. And so he, he identifies the fact that this is now Friday evening, the time just before sundown on Friday when Sabbath actually begins. Sabbath ran from, from the evening to the next evening. And this accounts for the haste in removing the body from the cross and, and getting it buried quickly because it can't happen on the Sabbath. And so uh, we see some things then taking place here that are a surprise. And we'll see that the women begin their journey uh, not on Friday, but it's not until Sunday morning that they actually head down to the tomb. So there's a time frame here that is going on that we need to kind of consider. Now, first of all, I would like for us to notice this man, and I want you to notice his character. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now, it's Friday evening, and Joseph is on the move. This is a surprise to everyone who's reading because Joseph is a member of the council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He, he's, he's part of that religious leadership, that same religious leadership that had Jesus arrested, that found him guilty of blasphemy, that stirred up the crowd to shout, crucify him, crucify him. The very same group that came up and mocked Jesus while he was hanging on the cross saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. How can this be? How can a man be a part of such 
hatred, and then after Jesus is crucified and dead, be so concerned about burying his body. Again, we may be so familiar with this, we're, we're not shocked. Well, Mark tells us the reason why. He tells us that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now let that sink in. Let that settle in your heart. One of the religious elite has been watching, has been listening, has been paying attention to who Jesus is and what he is claiming. And he's looking for the kingdom of God. And of course, we have to think about chapter 1 when Jesus comes preaching and we're told there the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so he's looking for this kingdom of God. And if we listen to Luke's account, Luke also tells us that Joseph had been one who refused to agree to the execution of Jesus in the council, among the Sanhedrin. So this is a very, very powerful reminder, friends. It's a powerful reminder to us that even among those who seem to be enemies of Jesus and of the cross, there may be some who are still listening. There may be some who are paying attention. And listen, when that those two guys come to your door and they knock on your door and they're wearing black pants and a white shirt and a tie and a little, a little you know, thing that says, my name is Elder such and such. I'm reminded of things like this. That even in the midst of darkness, there are people who are longing for the true Christ. They're longing for the actual gospel. And so you might say, no, I'm not interested, and just close the door. Or you can stop, and you can pause, and you can talk. And if they're at your door, then they're at your bidding. And I always figure out who the leader is and who the apprentice is, and I look to the apprentice, and I say, listen, when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, I want you to remember what I'm saying, that Jesus Christ died for your soul, that he is truly God. And if you repent and believe in the gospel, you will be saved. What you're being taught is a lie. The truth, and I would go on and speak that. You might say, well, that's not going to work. They're coming to your door. You never, ever know. And here's one, a part of this religious system who's looking for the kingdom of God. Now, we know there was another guy by the name of Nicodemus. And so it's just a reminder, friends, that, that even in your... <coughs> In your, in your guild, in your union, in your club, in your political party, whatever it might be at work, those people who say all these things, there might be someone who is even mocking your walk with God, who is watching, who is listening, who is being drawn by the sovereign grace of God. Don't write them off. Be ready and willing to welcome them in when they identify themselves. Joseph had a wonderful character, but he was also a man of courage. A man of courage. Joseph took courage and went to Pilate, it says, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion. He asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion, that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. We're told here that he was a respected man, which the idea there is he was influential, he was highly honored among the men in the Sanhedrin, in the community. But he was a man of courage, and it took courage for him to stand up in the midst of that Sanhedrin. It took courage for him to actually now go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. I mean, what would the council think about him going and gathering the body of this one that they were so offended by? That's not normal. That's abnormal. Would they shun him for providing a tomb for Jesus' body? 
Would he lose his reputation or even financial stability because he was willing to show kindness to the one who had showed up, the religious elite? But there's also a surprise of silence, isn't there? Because who's usually the one or the ones that take care of the body? It's usually family or friends. No disciples around. They're not charging after Jesus' body to, to secure it before you know, the Sabbath begins. At best, we have the three ladies who are watching. So what Joseph is doing is a magnificent thing. But there's, there's other surprises here, aren't there? Joseph goes to Pilate, and Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead, and, and to, to find out whether or not Jesus is already dead. You see how this is working in the text. He is looking now for testimony from the centurion who's in charge of the whole crucifixion to say, is he actually dead? And the centurion comes, the same guy who said, surely this is the Son of God, and he says, oh, he's dead all right. Now, friends, you have to understand, this isn't just a story that's unfolding. Mark is getting a point across by revealing this in the story. Because if Jesus isn't truly dead, then he cannot truly rise from the dead. You have to be dead before you can rise from the dead. I know it's basic logic, but that is the point here. And listen, if you would do a study, there's all sorts of theories about what happened to Jesus that people want to explain the supernatural away. But isn't it interesting, even in the other Gospels, the Romans, the leadership, are concerned that he actually might rise from the dead or that someone might come and steal his body, that they secure the, the stone and they put a seal on it. I mean, so there's kind of this, this kind of worry going on here. So the centurion gives his testimony and affirms that he's dead. And then we see Joseph's care. Now, this, this all happened really fast. He's, he's moving. He's rushing. He's trying to get Jesus down into the tomb, anointed and wrapped before the beginning of the Sabbath. See, what we want to realize here is that there's no question left unturned about the fact that Jesus was dead. So here is one of the religious leaders taking the body, putting in his tomb, anointing his body, wrapping his body. You've heard the expression, that person is dead and buried. Why do they have to say buried? Because there's a fear that that person may be dead, but not truly dead. You say someone's dead and buried, you're like, yeah, they're, they're dead, and they're in the ground, right? I mean, they're, they're, this, is, this is a definite. They're dead. And theologically, Mark is just driving that home here by the fact that you have Joseph of Arimathea doing all that is that is necessary, even though it was, it was temporary, it was, it was simple, but to care for the body with tenderness, preparing it now for burial. And what do we read? He, he, he bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, friends, the, the idea there is that the this, this stone is rolled down tracks on an incline so that that tomb stone or that, that, that stone, round stone, is solidly covering that tomb. He's secure there. Now, friends, so far we've seen all sorts of different surprises in the story. And it should remind us that God's ways are not our ways. That what we have read is, is not how man would have created a fabled story. What we have here is testimony, fact, surprise, prophecy, evidence 
that he is truly dead and buried. Now, the next stage, I'm sorry, I missed Joseph's care there. I want to jot that down. As we move on in the story, at the, at the end of this little section, we're reintroduced to the three ladies that were watching Jesus on the cross from a distance. And these are the ladies who had ministered with Jesus both in Galilee and in Jerusalem. Mary Magdalene, she's the one out of whom seven demons had been cast out. She's not the woman taken in adultery. Now, unfortunately, there's more legends about her than uh, you have made bacon and eggs for breakfast. Um, and, you know, you know, Da Vinci Code, things like that. Paint a picture of, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene hooking up and things like that. It's like, that is not the case at all. What we have here in Mary Magdalene is a godly woman saved from her sin, a faithful follower of Christ. Then you have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and you have Salome. And, you, and, and, and we, we see them brought back in now to the story. And notice now, at the end of the Joseph of Arimathea burial story, we find verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And so we want to consider now the surprise that Jesus is not just truly dead, but he's truly alive. And we'll see this now unfolding by the witness and the testimony of these ladies. And notice, first of all, that they are attentive to the body of Jesus. They love their master. And, and so that love remains, and it, it would seem that they're paying attention to what is happening with Jesus and his body. They're watching from a distance, seeing what is happening. And as the Sabbath evening is, is beginning, the women saw where Jesus had been laid. And I'm sure that what they saw was a surprise to them. That one of the religious elite had taken the body of Jesus and placed it in the tomb. But they're going to have to wait until the Sabbath is over to actually go and do something. And so it must have been agonizing for them to have to wait during this time so that they could honor and respect and, and express their love for their master. And you wonder what they're thinking. I don't think they'll wonder too much. They're crushed by what they've seen. Their master dying before their very eyes. A body brutalized, mocked, and scorned. And then to see a religious leader, a member of the council, come and take his body What's going on here? How can this be? But they took notice of where he was laid and hoping, hoping that they would have the opportunity to do this. And so we read now in verse 1 of chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, it says these three ladies bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So the first thing they do when the Sabbath is passed it's now Saturday evening. They go out and they buy the spices. Now, by the time they actually get to the tomb, it would have been 36 hours, Sunday morning. They get up early. They're going to go to the tomb. And you say, well, why spices? <clears throat> well, see, with 36 hours, typically the body begins to decay. But... Two-thirds of those hours would have been nighttime. You have Friday night, you have Saturday night, and then you have all day during the day on Saturday. And certainly outside it was probably hot, but in the tomb it was, it was cold. And, and, and certainly they were coming with these sweet-smelling spices, yes, out of love, but also to, to reduce the odor that, that would be experienced there in the tomb. And maybe what they didn't realize, of course, is what the Old Testament said of Jesus, Psalm 16 and verse 10, his flesh should not see decay. Even, even Peter on the day of Pentecost pulls from that text, that same verse, those same words. So they buy the spices and then they go to the tomb. 
So it's very early the next morning. Having secured the spices, they head off to the tomb. Look at verse 2 now and following. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And so as they're going, they're they're reminded, oh, wait a second, we got the spices. We know where he is, but how are we going to get in? Now, don't tell me you've never functioned that way before. You know, you want to do certain things, you gather it all together, and on the way you're like, oh, man, I forgot about that. How are we going to do this? What's going to happen? But notice they don't give up. They still press on. But they they are anxious about what is going to take place here. Because they, they're certainly not going to be able to roll the tomb or, or the, the stone away from the tomb themselves. Maybe they're, they're hoping that there'll be people there that can help them to do that. I don't know. Now, what Matthew tells us is that on Saturday, Roman guards have been placed at the tomb, and a Roman seal was glued to the tomb itself to ensure that no one would come and steal the body away and claim a resurrection, as the Jews feared. And now it's Sunday morning, and the women are coming and it hits them, who will roll the stone away? And notice verse 4, it tells us it was a very large stone. And so it's worth mentioning here that the women with good intentions and concerns about the day have worked hard and been anxious in vain. I mean, they've gone out and gone spices, but they're not going to get to anoint his body. They're worried about getting into the tomb. But what they find there is that the tombstone has already been removed. Now, it's, it's worth then remembering here that they come with spices, but Joseph has already prepared his body. But more importantly than that, if you go back to chapter 14 and verse 1 and following... Jesus' preparation for burial has already taken place by a woman who brought her alabaster box of, of pure nard and she breaks the box and she pours it over his head, anticipating his burial. So there's no need. But friends, it's not a bad question to ask, is it? Who's going to roll the stone away? You know, when you're faced with a financial shortfall, you will likely turn to your spouse and say, who's going to provide us the money we need this month to pay our bills? When you're faced with a medical condition, you will likely say, who will provide or give strength or bring about healing? When your relationships are a shambles, you might be saying, who can make anything beautiful out of this? It's an understandable question. It's a question that makes sense. Who will roll the stone away? It's too big for us. But God has all of that under control. Now, they are attentive. They're anxious, we've seen, but they're also alarmed because of what they find when they enter the tomb. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So this, is, this angel is described as a young man. It isn't actually a young man. It's clearly an angel, but this is what he looks like. Okay? And they were alarmed. And so would you be. You're coming to expect to find a dead body of someone you love in the tomb. And you go in and you find a young man dressed in white. And this word alarmed has the idea of fear and wonder and astonishment and distress. It's the same word used In chapter 14, verse 33, for Jesus' intense distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, so this is not just kind of like, oh, wow, cool. You know, this is like, ah. 
I'm not going to repeat that, just so you know. But then come some comforting words. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, friends, I'm calling this last section afraid because ultimately, if you go down to the bottom, the last word we have in Mark's gospel is what? <laughs> afraid. They listened to the angel. They listened to what he says and were told, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, let's just work our way to the end here. It begins here with correction. This is not on the screen. The angel now speaks, and there is correction. Do not be alarmed. I am, I am coming to you with some good news. We've heard this do not be afraid in other places, right? In other gospels. When the angel appears to Mary, when the angel appears to Elizabeth. It just reminds us when, when we are in the presence of, of something that is supernatural, a being that is a, a, a different part of the world, we are afraid. We are alarmed. We're not used to that. It shakes us to the core. But he says, listen, don't be alarmed. And then he brings this comfort. It's correction. There's comfort. And here's the comfort. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here See the place where they had laid him. Now notice that Mark carefully records the words of the angel. It is Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Now get your Bibles and turn to Mark 1 and verse 1. I just want to show you how this is connected. It says there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, just remember, Jesus Christ, Jesus is not his first name, and Christ is not his last name, okay? It's, it, it, these, are, these are titles now that are given to him by virtue of his humanity and his divinity. He is Jesus, that's his human title. Christ means Messiah. That's who he ultimately has come to be. Now the angel comes and says what? Jesus of Nazareth. So jump down, if you would, please, to verse 9, just a few words, uh, verses later. This Jesus Christ is identified as the Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. It is Jesus of Nazareth who has been crucified. It is Jesus of Nazareth who has risen. It is Jesus of Nazareth who is buried in this tomb. It is Jesus of Nazareth who is not here, we're, we're connecting the reality that the same guy that this gospel began with is the same guy we're talking about here at the end. This is not some kind of a, a apparition, some, some spiritual, uh, you know, kind of, kind of mystical being now that has replaced this individual. This is actually Jesus in his flesh and blood of Nazareth from Galilee. He's not here. He was here, he was brought here, he was wrapped, he was anointed, the tomb was sealed, Roman guards stood guard, but he's not here. See where they laid him. This Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus is risen. The word in the Greek language is called a divine passive. It's just a technical word that identifies that the power for Jesus' resurrection was not from outside, that this was God who raised him. It wasn't man who did it. It was God who did it. He is risen. In other words, it wasn't anyone else that rose Jesus from the tomb. God raised up the stone that the builders rejected. God is raising up here 
the new temple on this third day. This is all God's doing. So that's the, that is the, um, the comfort. And then we have the commission. Here's what they're told to do. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he has told you. That's just packed with a lot of information. Earlier in the Passion story, if you remember, Jesus tells his disciples, this is chapter 14, verse 27 and 28, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Do you remember that? And then he says in verse 28, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And here the angel comes and he's saying, listen, go tell the disciples that, remember what Jesus told you? Well, he's, he's still, that's still his plan. You're going to be going to Galilee. Now remember, they're, they're all scattered. They've all abandoned. Well, there's, the other stories tell us there's you know, maybe a couple that are nearby, but they're not where they should be ultimately. But go and tell them. So even before the disciples fail by abandoning Jesus, Jesus has already promised that they would return. So the women have seen and heard, but now they must go and tell. The sequel to Jesus' death has occurred. He's dead, and now he's risen. And the sequel to the disciples' failure now awaits them. They can be restored. There's failure and there's restoration post-resurrection. And what's implied here by the words of the angel is that the women will go to the disciples and tell them to go to Galilee and that the women will go with them as a group because that's how they have been functioning. These women have been a part of this entourage with Jesus and the disciples doing ministry. And so Mark ends his gospel rather abruptly, doesn't he? And this is where we're left with confusion. And they went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Now look at this. They fled from the tomb. This is not walking fast. You know, this is Speedy Gonzalez, if you guys know who he is, just going as fast as he can. If you don't, look him up on the internet, right? It's worth it. Um, Just going as fast as they can, not to tell. To flee means what? You're running away from. I mean, this has affected these women incredibly. So you might expect a a happy Hollywood ending to the story. That is not how Mark chooses to end his gospel account. On the level of human characters, this gospel ends with confusion and fear. What will happen to the disciples? Will they go to Galilee? Will they be restored? We're not told by Mark's gospel. Will the woman go and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen? I don't know because they have run away. And it tells us in the text, what? And they said nothing to anyone. Will they get over their fear and astonishment that has seized them and silenced them? We don't know. We're not told. We're just kind of left this cliff's edge. What's going to happen? It is an end to a story that leaves you Hanging and uncertain, especially if you've not read any other gospel. And friends, this was the first gospel that was written. But friends, this gospel does end with a bang. Because what these ladies are doing is not the central message to this gospel. The central message of this gospel is, who is Jesus? And what has he come to do? 
And we've been reading and studying about this. These characters are all part of the play, but there is a central character who is foremost in the play, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And just like he prophesied, he would go to a cross, having suffered abuse, having been scourged, having, uh, having been abused. He would uh, hang on that cross. He would die on that cross. He would be buried. And on the third day, he would rise again. Friends, that is a bang. That is victory, Paul says. Death is truly dead. Truly buried and truly raised from the tomb. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has been buried. Jesus has been raised. Now, friends, that is a bang. Now, just remember, this, this gospel is not supposed to be read in like, oh, I'm just going to read chapter 1 today. <laughs> this was read in totality. And it's a short gospel. And when you don't have much of contemporary, you know, breathed out word of God in the early church, you're just going to read it through and you're going to soak it all in. Jesus did this and he did this and he did this and he did this and all these things are happening, happening, and it just ends with a, and he rose again. That is a bang. Now, the question for us then is how are Joseph of Arimathea and the three women significant in the story. Well, first of all, think about Joseph of Arimathea. He reminds us that even among those who appear to be enemies of Christ, there are some who are looking for the kingdom of God. You may not know it at first. You may not know it for a while. But God is at work in places that you would least expect. The three women, I would say a couple of things. First, just simply the fact that they're present. The fact that they are showing their love and loyalty by following all the way to the cross and beyond the cross. But secondly, both Joseph of Arimathea and these women are witnesses to what actually happened. They are giving testimony. Now, in particular, the women, they see Jesus' death on the cross, chapter 15, verse 40. They see where Jesus is buried, chapter 15, verse 47. They see the open and empty tomb and the divine messenger, the angel of, of, uh, the messenger of, of that resurrection saying, he is risen. See, three times these, these women are mentioned. It's, it's, it's like Mark is saying, hey, listen, I want you to pay attention to these ladies. I want you to pay attention to these ladies. I want you to pay attention to these ladies. Why? Because they saw him die on the cross. They saw him buried. And they now experience the reality of his resurrection. Now, again, the surprise here is that the testimony, the major testimony about his resurrection comes from these women. Because women were not valued as witnesses in a first century Jewish context. But Mark considers their testimony as testimony that is truly valid. Mark wants to imprint on the reader that these events are true. Now, <clears throat> this is the same gospel, friends, that we find the early church preaching and has preached through the ages. And this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, hear this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And friends, this dead, buried, and risen again are the facts proclaimed by the early apostles, and these are the facts that we proclaim today. You see, this gospel has been moving to this pinnacle point. Yes, there's the atonement on the cross, but there's also this resurrection of victory. This is 
the Big Bang Theory, if you want to say it that way. This is what really, really matters in this gospel, that we see who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And then we have to wrestle with these facts that are unveiled for us. And so as we come to a close here, again, I want to just kind of work contextually through Mark's gospel and just hit on a couple of words that might help us understand how Mark's gospel should affect us. Now, as I mentioned, Mark's gospel seems to end abruptly as if Mark has more to say. But there's no escaping Mark's purpose in ending this way. Since the beginning of his gospel, Mark has been revealing to us some people who've come into contact with Jesus and there's a word that ties them all together. And it's this word here. It's the word astonished. Now just walk with me. If you have your Bibles, you can catch up with me. I'm going to read some passages of Scripture through Mark. I just want you to see how this unfolds. Mark chapter 1 and verse 22. The people are astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. We're introduced to this word. Mark chapter 6 and verse 2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Chapter 7 and verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Chapter 10, verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Chapter 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then here in chapter 16, verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word astonishment has the idea of to strike out with panic, to be amazed, to be, to be overcome with panic because of what you've seen, to be, to be so struck by what you've seen that you are just in, in total wonder. Now, friends, I, I bring that word up because I think Mark wants us to be astonished. He wants us, the reader, to, to read what we're seeing here and ourselves not just say, oh, it's interesting, they're astonished. No, the point is you should be astonished too. That what Jesus said he was going to do, he actually did. And we've seen all that happened about him and with him through the passion story that he dies, he's buried, and he rose again. And the testimony and the evidence is there. And it's testimony that is reinforced and reinforced and reinforced from the most unlikely sources. But that brings us to another word that is used throughout the gospel. A very similar word but it's the word amazed. Again, I want us to walk through Mark's gospel and just see how this word is used. Chapter 1, verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. No small statement there. Chapter 2, verse 12, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Never. Amazed. Chapter 5, verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
and they were immediately overcome with amazement. This was a resurrection. She was dead. Now she's alive because of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Chapter 10, verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Chapter 15, verse 5. But Jesus made no further answers so that Pilate was amazed. Now, to be amazed means to be beside oneself. Then you have to think, what does it mean to be beside oneself? It means to be so out of one's senses from strong emotion, either joy or delight or fear or grief. It means that you're overcome with a particular emotion that's so strong that it makes you almost out of control. To be shaken to the core. Friends, listen, Mark is not presenting gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's presenting Jesus as the Son of God, who when he enters this world, amazes you, shakes you up, because you see him on display. Now, again, we know these things because we're familiar with the story. When's the last time you saw one like Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, causing storms to stop? He is amazing. And we should be amazed and astonished. We should be amazed at who he is and what he has come to do. Now maybe it's because we've been spending too much time contemplating the sentimental Jesus that is so much a part of Christian culture and American culture. You know, we're so consumed with, with his love that we forget maybe the power of who Jesus really is. And friends, that doesn't take anything away from his love. If anything, it adds to his love. But it puts his love and his kindness and his tenderness and grace into a different category. It's a shocking, amazing, astonishing love and kindness and tenderness and grace that leaves us thunderstruck. That's why when Newton writes his song, Amazing Grace, he's not just saying, hey, this grace is kind of cool, maybe you'd like it. He says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. This is amazing. This is life-changing. This is Christ. This is who he is. And Mark is saying, do you see him? And do you see what he's done? How will you respond? Are you amazed? Are you shocked? He would leave heaven to come to this earth with the purpose of reconciling sinners to himself, that he would suffer, and that he would be the one that would give his life a ransom for many. He came, he was born to die. And I know even that is kind of like a, a Christian colloquial thing now. It's lost its power and it's amazing, but it should amaze us. He may have been dead and buried, but now he is alive and reigning in heaven. And man threw everything he could at Jesus. And they got him good. Only to find out that their getting him good was his plan all along. 
dead, buried, raised. Are you astonished? Are you amazed? My friends, if you're a Christian, this should encourage you. This should just cause you to say, I want to know more. I want to see more. I want to grow more. He is so amazing to me. If you're someone who's still seeking, maybe thinking about the truth of the gospel, I would plead with you, don't just read Mark or or listen to what we've been saying here in Mark's gospel. It's just kind of a a nice story about a nice guy who's who's a nice God. He's not here simply to to make your your life nicer. He's here to shake you to the core so that you will see your sinfulness for what it really is, but also at the same time, with that exposure, come to you and say, but I have died for that sin. It's paid for. It is finished. And the power that you need to know that what I'm saying is true is that I was dead, I was buried, but I am alive today. And the life that I live is the life that I give you through your resurrection. New life in Christ. Maybe we should be amazed just at our conversion and be thunderstruck that God would even seek us out rather than say well I did that no you didn't do that that was God that was doing that it was God seeking you out drawing you to himself that is amazing grace friends let us rest in that today Lord thank you for your kindness Forgive us for not being amazed. For not being overcome with astonishment. Lord, not in the sense that we're panicking and fearing, but Lord, just to to get a sense of who you really are. That you, with all your majesty and power, would condescend to us and welcome us into your family by virtue of what you have done for us on the cross. Lord, that is amazing. May our hearts be full of gratitude and joy and awe that we have been the recipients of your kindness and grace. And Lord, for anyone who is here who doesn't know you, Would you allow them, Lord, to to hear what your spirit is saying through his word and to welcome, Lord, your pursuit of them. Even, Lord, when they put up obstacles in the way, Lord, would you just keep penetrating? We know, Lord, that you are the one who saves. Thank you, Lord, for your, your, your kindness to us. Thank you for this gospel. Lord, thank you for our salvation. But Lord, thank you that we are now yours and you are ours. We don't deserve it. But Lord, we rest in it and we love it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.